We are small this morning. I need the microphone though, right? For Zoom. All right. Otherwise, I wouldn't have it. Is there a way that we could like move in? Can I do that? Can I ask you to move in to like the inner circle? It'll fit the motif and the theme. Glenna, you can stay. You made the bread. You can stay right where you are. <laughs> you can stay. Perfect. This is, yeah, great. I can see your faces. So I'm gonna, we're going to pray right now, uh, right off the bat. So if you got the e-blast or not, um, you may or may not know, but Peter Laney's son, Andrew, died suddenly on Friday. And uh, so Tim was there. I think Ross was there. Um, I went and visited him, and I th it's I totally unexpected for uh, Peter, and he's quite distraught, and so he, <laughs> he was pretty funny. He's like, he doesn't want meals, so he made that really explicitly clear. He doesn't want meals or casseroles or anything like that. He feels well-stocked. Um, I asked him what he needed. He doesn't know yet, um, but I know we're a really loving congregation, a loving family, and so when the time comes, um, I'm sure he will need us around him for visits and and um, love and support so just keep that in your in your thoughts and keep him and his family in your in your prayers um, so we're just gonna pray right now um, invite Jesus to be present with us so Jesus we thank you that that you are the good shepherd and we thank you that you know uh, your sheep's voices and we thank you that you know Peter's voice and you know Andrew's voice and you know that her family's voice and Jesus, we know that um, they knew your voice. And so we pray as a congregation uh, for Peter. We know that you're present with him. Uh, we know that you're, you're in that space, occupying his, his house, and you're, you're comforting him. And Jesus, may we be an extension of, of your love and comfort in his life. Help us to know how to do that. Lead us and guide us in ways to do that. And we thank you that uh, you are a loving shepherd, that you don't abandon your sheep, uh, even when we may abandon you. And so we thank you for that. We ask you to be with us this morning. We pray for all those who are not here, wherever they are, uh, at home, on Zoom, watching, afar, or traveling, uh, that you would be with them, your spirit would be present with them, and be known to them, and us this morning in your name. So this is uh, communion today. We're going to do communion Sunday. My birthday is actually on the 17th of October. When's your birthday, Matt? 15th. What? No way. Wow. Who's an October baby? Only the best. Only the best. Sorry about that. Only the best. <laughs> In our home, it's uh, Thanksgiving, my birthday, Faith's birthday, Halloween, then Judah's birthday. He always gets, like, <laughs> the tired... <laughs> leftovers of our energy it's not true we love them to death but um so today's communion so we're gonna we're gonna have communion later and and I, it's it's on purpose the way this is and i think this is a perfect little setting uh for this kind of communion as we'll get to that in a, in a second um or in a couple minutes so if you're at home you can have some time uh to gather some communion supplies as well uh, to just gather some uh, some bread and juice 
maybe even like an actual cup of juice and bread, not just a little wafer, which would be cool. Um, but this story, I think, ah, oh man, it's, it's, it's hard. This one, this one was hard to, uh, hard to come to because I don't know about you, but for me, as I go through particularly Mark's gospel, because I don't think I've ever gone through a book of the Bible so intently, so purposefully, where I feel like I'm, I'm actually kind of on the journey with Mark as he's trying to tell a story about Jesus. I have found so many times where it's like the story that I'm focusing on is really, ends up being really, really personal and really like illuminating and um, hard hard to wrestle with. And this one in particular is, is just tough for me personally, where I'm at in my life. It just really grabbed me. So I'm just inviting you to just, as normal, just imagine this world. And, you know, uh, Ron spoke last week. And so for me, it feels like forever ago that we kind of did this other story about uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem. And he's done all these wonderful things. And he's kind of has this huge amassed following and we've seen the power of Jesus displayed and we've seen him do all these miraculous things and we, 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 we get it, Jesus, like you're an amazing person. At this point in Mark's gospel, we get it. Like you can heal, heal the sick, you can raise the dead, you can walk across the sea, you can, you know, feed the multitudes a couple of times over. You're an amazing human being, Jesus. But as Mark's gospel goes along, he keeps talking about his death, and we don't get it. His disciples don't get it. What are you, what are you going on about Jesus dying? Jesus is walking to Jerusalem up that kind of craggly, jagged path, and his disciples are arguing who's going to be on his left and right side when he takes the throne of Israel. They just don't get it. And as they come into Jerusalem, and Jesus is like this, the momentum that he's bringing with him, is overwhelming. There's never been a person like Jesus in history. There's never been a figure like Jesus. These guys, these guys are these guys are ecstatic. They they feel like they're on the winning side. This guy is unbelievable. But their expectations are just just totally in the wrong direction. They don't see what's right in front of them. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem for Passover. And as I kind of, if you remember, like, got to imagine this, this city of Jerusalem and the, the scholars debate how big this city was at the time, how many people lived there. But we're not talking 10,000 people. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking every nook and cranny jammed full of people. People coming to Jerusalem for Passover. Sometimes, if you were from the far diaspora of, of the Roman world, the ancient Roman world, there were Jews scattered about the entire empire. It may be your life's mission, your life's goal to go to Jerusalem for Passover just one time. You may save up all of your money to make that pilgrimage just once in your life. So that if you were an elderly person and you were like waiting for this time to finally get to Jerusalem, all the expectation that you've, you finally made it. You have to imagine these are the kinds of people that are there. It's not just... Jerusalemites, or whatever they would call themselves, locals, people from all over the known world. And they'd been doing this for hundreds of years. 
This was not a, like a modern thing, Passover in Jerusalem. This has been going on for centuries. So you have to imagine if you were part of a, the tribe of Benjamin, you were up somewhere in, you know, wherever, Philippi or some part of Greece, and you were part of the, the Jewish diaspora, and you took months, you planned your life to come months down to Jerusalem for Passover because that's what your grandparents did and their grandparents and their It's just this, the history the expectation. And Jesus is just one other person coming into Jerusalem for Passover. One scholar said, now this is the debated between uh, two different kind of scenarios. It's kind of a, a, a tricky thing. And the more I got into it, the more complex it became. And so I kind of, one of those things you investigate, you kind of leave alone. Who's ever done that before? I don't know. Like, like it's really complicated in terms of how, what day Passover was what was actually Passover. So the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they kind of melded into one holiday. And so did Passover start on Thursday evening or was it Friday evening? And when did, you know, the synoptics just got really complicated. It's like, I got to just leave that alone. I'm not going to understand it right now. But all told, one ancient historian said that, <laughs> just imagine this, 18 thousand lambs were slaughtered for Passover in Jerusalem. Eight, at least 18,000 lambs. Just imagine like the machinery to make that happen. So they said, there's, one scholar said there's about, about a two-hour window where, where it was appropriate to, to do the slaughtering of these lambs. And they only had enough priests to slaughter 18,000. Now, I'm not a butcher. I do not have the stomach for that. I don't know, probably some of you are. I, I, I can barely pick apart a chicken carcass without throwing up. So, honestly, I've just, <laughs> this is really embarrassing. Just this last few months, I think, I just started cutting up my own chicken, like chicken breast. Because I just can't handle it. I can't handle the meat. No, 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 no. When it's cooked, it's fine. When it's raw, sorry. Raw chicken, raw steak. I've just, like, gotten to the point. Yeah, no, 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 no. No one's, cook no one's cutting up my, my food for me. Uh, but I wouldn't survive an apocalypse. Let's just say that. I'm not a hunter. So I don't know what it's like. I don't know how quickly it would take to slaughter a lamb. I don't imagine it's a quick thing to do. But it, it doesn't even matter. 18,000 lambs. The logistics to make that happen. The amount of people to make that happen. The lines. The, the order. The chaos. Like this is the, this, the temple is just, and it has to be done in the temple. It's an amazing amount of people. An amazing amount of stuff happening. So one scholar is 18,000 in Jerusalem proper. One, one guy says actually 250,000 lambs every Passover would be killed. It's an incredible amount of work, blood, and Jesus is kind of in that line. He's there. And so if we go back a little bit to Mark 14, he's really trying to help us understand this. He says in two days, the eight-day festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so those two kind of holidays combined, would begin. The high priests and religious scholars were looking for a way that they could seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
So rem remember that, Mark tells us. But they agreed it should only be done, not should be done during Passover week. We don't want the crowd up in arms. So you got this eight-day festival, this week-long festival coming, but we're not going to kill Jesus during it. No, 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 that's too risky. It's too risky. So they'll wait till the crowds have gone down. Then they'll take their moment. They're smart. They're pragmatic. Remember, Pilate is down for this, fe for this pe festival, festival week as well. He's there in the city. He doesn't live there. He's there to quell riots. They know that. They don't want to incite riots. So we're not going to do anything to incite a riot, to, to incite a revolt, or bring up a crowd. And so Pilate will come down with his legions and just wipe us all out. It's a, it's a real, real problem. So then the, the, the story of Jesus, uh, the, the, uh, the perfume being dumped over his head, the anointing. And then Judas, after this, one of the twelve, went to the high priest and determined to betray Jesus. And they couldn't believe their ears that this is the high priest and the religious leaders. And they promised to pay him well. So he started looking for just the right moment to hand him over. Now, I never really understood this until this, until really diving into this story. It's like, why did Judas need to betray Jesus if everybody knew who Jesus was? Well, it's the city. The city's so packed with people. Every nook and cranny, it's just someone is everywhere. You couldn't just go around hunting for Jesus. He wouldn't have stood out like that. There's too many people, too much going on. They need to know where he was, where he was going. And Judas knew that. And they couldn't believe. Jesus 12 has come deliver him to us? That's an important note, Mark says. Well, then it goes on. On the first of the days of the unleavened bread, the day they prepare the Passover sacrifice, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations so you can eat the Passover meal? He directed two of his disciples, go into the city. A man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him. Ask the owner of whichever house he enters. The teacher wants to know, where's my guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a spacious second-story room, swept and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples left, came to the city, found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. After sunset came with the twelve, as they're eating supper, Jesus, he said something to them. Now you have to imagine, this is interesting. This, this feast, this celebration had been celebrated for hundreds of years. And it dates back to the pass or the first Passover of God's Spirit in Egypt. It was only a couple years ago that actually like that clicked for me. Oh, pass over the houses. When God's Spirit passed over the doorways with the with the lamb, the blood's lamb painted over. And so this was when they first celebrated Passover. God's Spirit passes over to Egypt, and, and the next day, Pharaoh's so distraught by the loss of his own son. He releases the Israelites from slavery. And they have this kind of feast of unleavened bread. There's no time to prepare rising bread with yeast. You've got to just eat quickly with your clothes, like, tucked in, ready to go. And so 
this celebration had been happening for hundreds, thousands of years. But it kind of evolved. It was a celebration of God's like freeing of the Israelites way, way back in the time of Moses. But by in Jesus' time, it was a celebration of their freedom. It was a celebration of their kind of political freedom. That they would have told these stories because God had chosen them and God had set them free. And so they would celebrate as free people. And so this Passover meal was as much religious and theological as it was political. And so there's a rule. By the time of Jesus' time, it was in the Mishnah, one of the the Jewish kind of um, rule books, is that no matter what your station in life as an Israelite, you got to celebrate Passover. No matter how poor you were, you got to celebrate Passover. No matter how low in status you were, you got to recline. You got to lay out, eat like a feast. You got a minimum of four cups of wine. So you could be a nobody, have no money, but you are entitled to at least four cups of wine. You are entitled to at least reclining as if you are wealthy because God has set you free. And so this Passover meal, there's lots of like the Da Vinci, um, the Last Supper, like there's a table and they're all sitting on one side of the table for some reason, you know, that's kind of weird. My, my dad, and way back when I was a, a teenager, they did, I don't know if I've ever, ever seen this, like the, the reenactment of the Passover. I don't know what they even call it. But like, it's like they reenacted the painting and they all stood still and then they had like, each of them had a monologue about their roles. Ever, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Do you know what it's called? I don't remember. Anyway, it's a weird thing. It's a memory that I had. And that's not what it would have been like all to say. Da Vinci was kind of off. It's not a table. They're not sitting on one side of it. They're reclining. And they're not probably alone. There's probably the women, some of other followers, probably even children. This is a family thing. This is a family feast. This is a family feast to instill the idea and the history that God has made us free. That we are free people because of God. He set us free in Exodus. He set us free into the wilderness. We're free now. And they're waiting for that that other freedom. Because the truth is, they're actually not free at this point. They're under Roman subjugation. And they desperately wanted out. And so that political weave-in, that some point in history, God's going to send us, and we'll be really free again. It's a political, religious, traditional, family meal. And Mark is just, he's, he's really setting us up for something here. Well then, Jesus said, I have something hard but important to say to you. They're eating. They're having this meal. It's debated whether there's a lamb present or not. And we're not sure. But they're eating. They're reclining. They're having their wine. They're having a, they're, they're out in this feast. And Jesus says, one of you in this room, is going to hand me over to the conspirators. One who at this very moment is eating with me. This is where Mark is a genius. 
He's a genius writer. Who is it? Who? Judas. He's already told us. It's Judas. We know it's Judas. He's, Mark has told us. He's, he's tipped his hat. Judas has already done this. So we know it's Judas. Easy, Jesus. We know the answer as readers. But the disciples, they're, they're baffled. They start asking one after another, is it me? Is it me? No. Can't be me. One of the solos in that big giant play that this reenactment of Da Vinci painting, one of the songs was, Is It I? I don't know if you, if you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to sing it for you. But it's sung really kind of softly and reflectively and kind of placidly. As I don't, I don't think it captures the sentiment of the disciples. I think they're kind of horrified. They're shocked. They're probably angry. They're probably very confused. What? Like, who's going to betray you, Jesus? Who would do that? That makes no sense. You're going to walk into the palace and become king. Why would we betray you? He said, Jesus, it's one of the twelve. One who eats with me out of the same bowl. Jesus, in this Passover feast, had kind of taken the role of the father, of the patriarch. And it wasn't required by Passover law or rule to have individual cups. So Jesus instead had one bowl. He had the bread, the food, and he likely passed around the same cup. And Jesus is saying, one who's in my very inner circle, one who could be as close to me as you could possibly get, one of my close family who's dipping and drinking from the same cup as me is going to betray me. You couldn't get, you couldn't have a, a deeper betrayal. In one sense, it turns out that the Son of Man is entering a new way of treachery well marked by the Scriptures. No surprises here, Jesus says. In another sense, the man who turns him in turns traitor to the Son of Man. Better to have never been born than to do this. Then Jesus goes on. In the course of their meal, having taken and blessed the bread, he broke it and gave it to them. Now this meal, there's all kinds of scriptures and prayers and reflections that would have probably gone into this meal, into the Passover, that would have been done and recited and repeated year after year after year after year after year. And if you were a, a Jew, good Jew or not, just a Jewish person, you'd have been inundated and surrounded by this liturgy your whole life long. You would know this inside and out. And you would know what it's talking about. It would be as colloquial as Santa Claus and a Christmas tree in North America. We, you just know what it's about. You know, what, you know the, in, the inferences, the nuances. And whether you're paying attention to Santa Claus or not, you know. And these people in this Passover meal would have just, this would have been so commonplace to them. There's nothing spectacular about this particular Passover until... Jesus has this woven into this Passover. Mark tells us this is just absolutely outrageous. 
Then Jesus says, take this is my body. This bread that you're eating is my body. Taking the chalice, he gave it to them, thanking God, and they drank from it. And he said, this is my blood. God's new covenant poured out for many people. So this is a, this is a, this is a challenge for me because like a, a Jewish person in that era, I've grown up hearing these words my whole life. Right? Like it's engraved. We made, Mar uh, Mike and I made sure to, you know, do this in remembrance of me. But like we've etched it onto our furniture. Like we, it's so a part of Christendom and the Christian psychology that really until this, coming at it this time in this story, realizing how absolutely outrageous these words of Jesus are. This is totally, incredibly outrageous and radical. That Jesus is hearkening back to the Exodus when the blood, the, the first sacrificial lamb is sprinkled over the Israelites in the wilderness. And that first Passover is remembered. And this long history this like intricate, deep, long history of God's redemption in the world, Jesus is saying in this moment, in this upper room, at this time, with this family gathered, with his disciples there, that this now, this celebration is about me, my body, my blood, a new covenant. Jesus is saying in this moment, your history is pivoting 180 degrees. This long history of Israel is it's brand new. He's taking this Passover thing, he's making it new. Something completely new. And I don't think the disciples had really any idea what Jesus was talking about. Really. I don't think they did. This is my body. This is my blood. God's new covenant. I'll not be drinking wine again, Jesus says, until the new day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. They sang a hymn. Then they went to Mount Olives. And on the way, somewhere in there, Jesus actually gives them, he helps them out. He says, you're going to feel like your world is falling apart. Yes. That is an understatement of the century, Jesus. And you're going to feel like it's my fault. That's also true. If your whole worldview, without your knowledge, without your really understanding, comes crashing down. This is what, again, this is Mark's genius. Mark is moving us closer and closer and closer to the apex of his story. That all this expectation onto Jesus that these guys had. Jesus is saying it's going to come apart. Your world is going to crumble into pieces. And 
You're going to blame me. This is where Mark, oh man, so good. The scripture, Jesus says, don't, don't just take my word for it. Look into our own history as Jews. He says, the scripture says, I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will go helter-skelter. You're going to hit the shepherd, and the sheep are going to scatter, of course, because the sheep need the shepherd. Without a shepherd, where's the flock? But then, after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you, leading you to Galilee. So Jesus is really trying really hard. The poor guy, he's always trying so hard to help us. He's like, here, I'm gonna, I, I've done this new thing, which you don't really understand yet. There's a new covenant. It's, it's not rewriting the history of Israel, but it's redirecting it. The whole trajectory of, of, of God interacting with humanity is, has just changed. It's changing right now. You're not going to understand that. It's going to destroy your worldview. And you're going to want to blame me. You're going to think it's my fault. But don't worry. That's okay. That's actually expected. You hit the, you hit the shepherd. The, the sheep will scatter. That's okay. But don't worry. I will come back from the dead. And then I will lead you into the future. So meet me in Galilee and we'll, and we'll, we'll recollect. Jesus is like laying out a roadmap for them scaffolding their small brains to what they should do next. And then, Peter, it's always Peter, just blurts out. Even if everyone is ashamed of you when things fall to pieces, I won't be. Even if everyone else is ashamed of you, Jesus, when things don't work out, I won't be. Don't be so sure, Jesus says. Today, actually, this very night, in fact, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter blusters out in protest. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others said the same thing. Then they came to Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit down here while I pray. And the story goes on. But <laughs> Peter says... Yeah, 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 that world, when it falls apart, Jesus, I'll still be there. I won't deny you. No, no, Peter, don't. <laughs> don't go there, buddy. Like, you mean well, but just actually in a few hours, you're going to deny me three times. No, I'll die with you. And this, I think, is why I think I love Mark, I think, so much. Mark writes this story in a way that I have found in the last 24 hours, especially, it's, it's, he sets it up. Oh, it's the, it's the crowd's fault. It's the high priest's fault. Those angry religious leaders, it's their fault. Well, it's Judas. It's Judas's fault. He's the betrayer. 
Well, it's Peter's fault. It's his disciples' fault. It's my fault. Mark draws us in to the story where we actually become a part of it. And we look at Jesus with the same expectations. And we have the same feelings as all these other people. And he does it so subversively that if you're not honest with yourself, you'll miss it. You just gloss over it to the end of the resurrection, but or whatever else, you'll find something else to think about. But as I went through this, it's like, oh man, that's me. I have done this this you know this series of art pieces that I started to do, and I thought they were something that I, like, they were the reflections of somewhere that I had arrived at. I wanted to do uh, a little more, I've always struggled to really express my artistic self without fear of rejection or offending people. But this time I was like, you know what, I really felt like I needed to do this for me. And so I, I, I it kind of evolved into this, this series that I've kind of called My Jesus I Leave Behind. And actually it's kind of from that song, My Jesus I Love Thee. Like My Jesus, this kind of placid tones and you know the the good shepherd pictures and all that the jesus that i'm going to leave behind that i that i that, that i've these conceptions of jesus that i've made in my mind that i can't have anymore because they're not true and you know so a couple of them were like i thought well this would be kind of fun like jedi jesus i'm a big star wars fan and i've always liked obi-wan kenobi and Sometimes I thought of, you know, when I think of Jesus, I think of this wise kind of Jedi kind of figure, like the master who's controlled and, you know, and, and he's a leader and he's smart and he's a mentor. But of course, Jedis protect without attachment. They don't love. They do it out of a sense of moral obligation, but there's no attachment. There's no love. So Jesus can't be a Jedi, obviously. I did one where uh, Jesus is a vending machine. So I drew Jesus like a vending machine. And he, you know, like, put your, put your right amount of change in, push the buttons, and you get what you want, right? Well, Jesus isn't a vending machine. He's not here for cheap treats whenever I feel like them. That's not, that's not Jesus. Um, I've got some other ideas I'm going to do later on, but one of the most poignant ones for me is you know, Jesus is the, not a talent agent. And I struggled with this one. I didn't know how to quite grasp what I was trying to say, but Jesus isn't my agent. He isn't here to line up gigs for me. He's not here to make me money. He's not here to give me prosperity. He's not working for me like a sports agent would. And that one was really hard to do and really hard to confess. Jesus isn't John Rambo. I'm a big 1980s action fan. My dad showed me these movies when I was a kid. Probably shouldn't have. But he's not Rambo. He's not going to come in and like slaughter 99 to save one. That's not who he is. And as I'm working through these art pieces, 
lo and behold, to come to this story, and it just strikes me deep, deep down. Jesus, who have I expected you to be? I am right in there. I feel myself right there with Peter and John and the others. You've set a new covenant, a new way of being a human being. I don't understand. It's breaking my worldview. And I want to blame you, Jesus, because it doesn't make sense to me. Lord, help me to see. Lord, help me to know the resurrection, to see the new way of seeing him. And so this morning, I think we're going to come to the table, this Passover feast, this, this communion table, where we get to actually, we, we, maybe we don't fully know it. I don't think I fully know it come to the end of the story, that we do this in remembrance of Jesus because he's not dead. He is alive. He's come back. He's written a new covenant that we don't have to go to the temple and slaughter slaughter 200,000 lambs to find vindication from God. We don't have to have a political march that we're free because we're already free. Because we're already in communion with the Father through the Son because of what he's done. That his sacrifice, just it finished all of that and enters in something brand new that we are now invited to be a part of. And that's pretty good news. And so what I was kind of thinking of doing is actually kind of making this a little more reflectively informal. That it's, we do the communion with the little things and the wafers, and that's great. What I'm hoping to do is that we maybe even divide in a couple groups, that we spontaneously serve each other. I don't know how you feel about hands, but we can kind of break off a piece. I'll hold it. You can break off a piece. And you can just sit and pray, reflect, as we just part- like eat and remember the blood and the body of Jesus in this new covenant that he's made for us, in this new way of being alive because of him and that we can actually while we're doing that while we're eating as we can just say Jesus I give my expectations of you up and if there's a way that you think I have misunderstood you Jesus you take that moment and say I'm sorry help me to see you for who you are for who you actually are so I don't know, Mike, if you have like some, some music or something to play, that would be awesome. And whenever you're ready, um, you know, I'll serve everybody. Whenever you're ready, just come on up.